Last message in 2020 will be about fighting and nastiness, which it is. And we pick up this morning, right where we left off last time in Exodus. The children of Israel are in Rephidim, and this morning our text is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and a glorious text it is. We've been following this newly freed nation uh, that has been facing self-destruction. They uh, were afraid of dying and rallied out against Moses in chapter 15 because of lack of water, chapter 16 because of lack of food, first part of chapter 17 again with lack of water, and today they face their most dangerous test yet the fear of dying by the sword of their enemy. So let's stand together and open our Bibles to the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus as I read from verse 8 to the end of the chapter. These are, again, the holy, infallible words of our living God. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel In Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do love your word. We love to read it. We love to meditate on it. Father, just as the children of Israel faced enemies both from within and from without in this untimely attack in our text this morning, may we be equipped to do battle within and without as well. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in the glorious little town of Milwaukee, Oregon, outside of Portland. And there were a few years of my life that I lived for 7.30 p.m. on Tuesdays. Tuesday nights, my mom would get the kids ready. Now, granted, I was maybe third, fourth grade, so, uh, but I wasn't one of the kids. But mom would get the kids ready and off to bed and I would join dad on the couch, 
And I would run at 7.30 and turn that channel to KATU Channel 2, the uh, ABC channel. And the music would be cued. Combat, starring Rick Morrow and Rick Jason. See, I got one amen. I got no amens in the, <laughs> in the 8.30. I got one, you remember? And I'm telling you, this was a show. And what combat was, it followed two main characters, Sergeant Chip Saunders and Lieutenant Colonel Rick Hanley. And it followed them from D-Day all the way through to the end of the war, mostly in uh, France, little town by little town. And boy, I was on the edge of my seat every Tuesday. And I would say, don't go in there, Chip, there's a booby trap. And he wouldn't. And, and I would go to bed every Tuesday night. And I would go to sleep with thoughts in my head of good versus evil, heroes and villains, right and wrong, courage and cowardice, teamwork and self or selfishness. These were themes over and over in this show. And I would go to bed with those good noble thoughts that are hard to find these days. But it never stopped there with us in the neighborhood. For certainly two or three times a week, we would gather together and as broomsticks for M1 rifles and dirt clods for hand grenades, we'd pick sides. And we all wanted to be Chip, because <laughs> he was the toughest. But we'd have a group of us that were the U.S. Uh, and a group of others who were slang names you can't say anymore. And we would refight the battles that we had seen that week. Now, why would we do that? And why did we do that? <clears throat> Nobody taught us to do this. Why are boys naturally drawn to war and to battles and stories of battles like combat? By the way, it's a good show if you ever, it's out now 40 DVDs, I think, or 35 of them. But it's a, it was a great show. Now, Stephen Ambrose, one of the greatest military historians, of, at least of our generation, was asked that same question the week that his book was made into a miniseries called Band of Brothers. And he was asked this question. Why are you and boys of all ages so obsessed with war? And Ambrose's answer went like this. I'm not obsessed with war. I'm obsessed with stories of ordinary men doing extraordinary things when they're called upon. Unfortunately, this generation is a generation grew up with the message that Coke... Not facing death in war is the real thing. I remain obsessed because I will never really know the overwhelming question in my soul and the souls of every man. Am I a coward? For the men in this newly delivered slave nation who are already doubting and questioning God and his provision, these men will soon answer that question in our text this morning, as will we, their spiritual descendants. Our text this morning opens up with three words, 
you'll either see it as then came Amalek or Amalek then came or something like that. But in Hebrew, it's really end comes Amalek right after the events that just took place. And he fought with Israel in Rephidim. This is the first of several firsts in our text in the Bible uh, this morning. Uh, This is the first battle that Israel has with another nation. So we want to take a look at all sides of this battle this morning under three headings. God's designed battlefield in verses 8 through 10. God's perfect battle strategy in verses 11 through 13. And finally, God's permanent battle shrine in verses 14 through 16. So let's start with this providentially and sovereignly designed battlefield. The scene of this battle, according to the text, is Rephidim. As we last saw it, Israel was complaining about the lack of water. They're on their way from the wilderness of sin to Mount Sinai. And just as the Lord had done with the provision of manna, he brings water out of the rock to feed the children of Israel. And we will sometimes very easily just gloss over that. And Moses struck the rock and they water and water came to the children of Israel. But when we think of the size and scope of this group of people, these miracles take on a different significance. And the battle that is going to, we're going to see take place today also uh, gives us lots of clarity. If we remember from Exodus chapter 12, the number leaving Egypt was 600,000 men, plus women, plus children, plus the elderly, plus possessions, plus livestock. Now, most commentators and scholars put the number of the children of Israel somewhere between two and two and a half million, and that's probably right. But if you do the math like I did this week, just rudimentary, and think a group that size would probably have, what, around 10 extended family members, and then all of their possessions and all of the things and, and, and their livestock, you would probably need about a 40 by 40 plot to have each individual family in. And if you do the math, this group of Israelites would basically stretch. If Moses is in the left corner of the column in our parking lot, this column would stretch all the way to Custer and then all the way back between Virginia Parkway and 380. That is a big column of people. Now imagine Moses striking a rock in the beginning portion of chapter 17 and that water feeding all the livestock, all the people in that column. That's a big gush of water. It's not a little pipe. (laughs) The water's coming out. And if we think of that in the form of a battle, uh, we start uh, putting together how magnificent God's provision is for Israel in our text. As we'll see from the text, Amalek fought with Israel, but Moses reveals more about this assault in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you 
on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. You see, what happened is this cowardly group of Amalekites being nomadic people attacked the the least vulnerable, the least able to defend themselves group of Israel in, as Deuteronomy calls it, the tail or the caboose of these people. Because as they were moving, the sickly and the, the, uh, the elderly who could bear, they would naturally be toward the end of the procession. And that's exactly what happened. So we must first ask ourselves, who is this Amalek? If we remember Genesis chapter 36, we realize that this is a family massacre. Amalek is Esau's grandson. Both Both the children of Israel and the Amalekites come from Abraham and Isaac. The line of Moses and the children of Israel come from Jacob. And Esau gave birth to Eliphaz, and Eliphaz gave birth to Amalek. This is the first of many attacks that uh, Israel will have with the Amalekites until they are finally wiped out. And this is also the first battle we see between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, sometimes in the Scripture, it's hard, particularly in the Old Testament, it's hard to tell where that seed is. And sometimes you even have crossover between some of the the seed of the woman going back to the seed of the serpent and vice versa. It's clearer in the New Testament as the seed of the the woman is clearly those that are in Christ. But as we read, Amalek sends his raiding troops back to the back of the column and attacks, and he attacks to kill. Already on the verge of destruction emotionally and physically from shortages of food and water that results on attacks on Moses by the people, we have a disaster for this country, nation at our hands. Only eternity will tell us how many uh, thousands lost their lives in the sands outside of Rephidim over that day plus of this battle. But to be sure, the cries of Moses that he heard, uh, cries to Moses that he heard earlier, uh, that have you just led us here to die with this thirst? Win or lose this battle, the cries are going to be, Moses, why did my daughter, my grandmother, my grandfather need to die bleeding and murdered in this sand. Moses, we were slaves in Egypt, yes, but my little boy or my girl or my mother or my father or my grandmother or grandfather is now dead. It would have been better that we were still slaves, they would be alive. Now, Redeemer Church, particularly you men here today, what would you have done if you would have been in that wilderness with your families 40 by 40? plot. Perhaps the Trigstead 40 square would have been somewhere between El Dorado and Stonebridge when this battle took place. 
we would have heard it coming, a rumbling, a noise of war. Joshua calls it later in Exodus chapter 32 like this. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of the shouting of victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And remember the story of, the, of them coming off the mountain and the uh, worshiping of the golden calves. But there definitely is a cry of war that's a cry of the sound of defeat. And I would assume, even from Stonebridge, if the Amalekites attacked it, even as far as 380, the screams and the shrieks would get louder and louder as people vacated and fought this murdering rack of nomads. We're so quick to criticize Israel, I think, brothers and sisters. How would you have felt, dads? Would you have felt, why have I done this? Why have I taken my family in this forsaken piece of sand? We're tired. We're not trained warriors. We don't even have an army. I don't know what else, brothers and sisters, I would have thought and spoken to my wife in my, inside my 40 by 40. But I think a couple things would have at least crossed my mind. The first being, <clears throat> I have to do something, and I have to do it right now. And number two, I'm sure I would have had a hatred for this band of people attacking us, and I think I just might have begun to hate the God who has brought all this on. And we would be right, at least in the last part, for it was a sovereign and loving God that has orchestrated every scene, every detail of this battle. As the noise of the battle and the confusion of the camp rises, God instructs Moses. We see in the text, verse 9, <clears throat> So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, how hard do you think it was to get recruits for this? The word... Uh, the, world, uh, is our no the word and the noise gets louder. If there was a sword anywhere within your 40 by 40 men, you would have taken that sword and you would have probably already been gone to meet Joshua. And you would have gone and any thoughts you had of maybe being a coward in your soul would have been gone. You would have been fighting to defend your family. I'm sure of it. Remember, the Lord has not only set up the circumstances for this nation as a whole, through this battle, he's also setting up the circumstances for every single person in that column. This is the exact experience that Stephen Ambrose in Band of Brothers talks about when he says, when pressed to protect your comrades and loved ones, is the time ordinary men become extraordinary, yet still remain terrified. There's no superhuman fighter that comes. 
Those men grabbed whatever they could. If they had a knife, if they had a, a sword, if they had a plowshare, they took whatever they could to go battle. Still terrified. They, but they're protecting their own. And kids, this is a message for you here today. Especially you boys, and especially you boys if you have little sisters or little brothers. God has called you to take care of, love, and protect your little sister and your little brothers. Listen, let them have the last piece of candy. Let them have the first turn at the game you're playing. And just as you know your daddy loves you and is here to protect you, you love and protect your sister and brothers all the time. Okay, boys? Okay, I'm going to take that as an okay. So the scene is set. By the way, this is the second first in our text this morning. This is the first that we've ever heard or read about Joshua. And there's no introduction or no uh, explanation of why he is doing what he's doing, yet the narrative seemingly is obviously saying he is the leader to put this ragtag militia together and is probably going to be the replacement for Moses, which he is. But Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men and go fight with Amalek. Just one word to you brothers today is, that, is this, men do the fighting. Choose for us men. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did, and as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek while Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, the assumption in this text by many is as the battle rages, uh, everyone, all the Israelites on the battlefield could see Moses with this staff raised. Yet, there's nothing in the text that demands this. Considering the distance involved and nat the natural mayhem that would Vetably ensued, it's more likely that no one saw Moses, and many in the battle didn't even know what he had said. <clears throat> but Moses was there. Plus, think about this. In hand-to-hand -hand combat, taking one's eyes off the enemy, even to glance at the top of the hill, to the top of the hill could be deadly. The text just says, so Joshua fought with Amalek. The point here, man, is this is bloody, ugly, dirty, dusty, hand-to-hand, face-to-face, either you die or I die, combat. These were brave men of Israel with no training, no standing army, using most likely anything they could use as weapons. And they're fighting a bloodthirsty band of trained, rested, and fed desert-killing machines. How can they win? The answer is they can't. Yet the entire battle is happening under God's hand, including the outcome, which he's already decreed. So let's look at this perfect battle plan of God in verses 11 through 13. 
Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, kids, there's a, you have a coloring picture in your, uh, the bulletin that you may be coloring. And Mrs. McCullough also found a really good one that we couldn't get in, but there is some copies of it. And this is it. And you can't see it from up here. But what you see here in this, and I, why I love this, even if it's a cartoon uh, a Sunday school color picture, is when you look at this picture, there's only one thing that you, really comes to your eyes. It's not Moses. He's you know, not even looking. You see Aaron or her, I suppose that's Aaron, and then her holding his arms up, and then the battle going on. But the focus on this is obviously the staff or the rod of God. And we don't know much, we know who Aaron is, we don't know much about her, except that the, the Jewish historian Josephus says that her married Moses' sister Miriam, which might make some sense. We, I don't think we can go to the bank with that, but it would make sense that, that uh, Moses had Aaron on one side and his brother-in-law on the other side. But it's the rod, it's Moses' staff that's the focus. And the focus of the staff is not the, the wood itself, it's the power of God that's behind it. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered it, Amalek prevailed. At, 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 a, at a first glance reading of that, it almost sounds like a rugby scrum or one team moving the ball down the field a little better than the other one with field position in a football game. But remember, in this kind of combat, if someone is prevailing, they're not just staying alive and gaining ground. They're literally killing the enemy one by one by one. Even more than this, the word prevailing here in the original has a, has a deeper meaning than just defeating. There is, a, there is a side of this that is exertion, uh, or the exertion of attitude, confidence, bravado, and maybe even a little bit of cockiness. How he did it, we don't know. But the results were this untrained, unprepared army of Israelites put together by, by Joshua is given supernaturally by God a confidence, a skill, a bravado that they never would have had, and they take care of business. <clears throat> When Moses held that staff high, God intervened, giving this ragtag band of brothers a courage and strength they never had. They did not have before, and they most likely didn't have after. But the problem is, Moses is 80 years old now. 
And he's got to hold this staff up. You know, the other night, I came home from the office, and I was looking for Lisa, and she, and she was way in the back of her bedroom. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, you can't hear it. And it was beep, beep. You know, that irritating sound that usually happens at 2 in the morning. The dreaded <clears throat> smoke detector going off. So I got a couple of 9 volts, and then just, you, you've got to track it. You know, you okay, it's this way, and okay, it's, you're getting warmer, and then up, oh, there's the culprit, and I changed one, and beep, beep, I heard, there's another one, and, and then this one starts doing it, and I'm like, are these bad batteries? So I go down and open up a fresh pack and put them back in, and beep, beep, oh, so I get them, and I tear the, get a little step ladder, I tear the thing down, and, I, and in the back, it actually shows you, you know, the log of what the, what the beeps are. And the two quick beeps every 30 seconds is, the unit needs to be replaced. Oh, yeah. And so I look online. Yes, yeah, it says every seven to 10 years they need to be replaced. So I'm thinking, this, if this one's going, they're all going to go. So I went and got a few of them, and I replaced it, tried to replace it. And I went up, got the stepladder, and I had a, two screws I had to take off, and it was, you know, bad angle, and then it, it's... The Phillips is like stripping, and I gotta push harder. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my arms. Oh, so I put them down and so I rest. And then, oh, and, and then it's only like 10 seconds I can do it. And then it's five seconds. It, it was a nightmare. But I thought, I'm gonna be preaching this. And what was it like for Moses? I mean, I was in pain just holding a little screwdriver up like this for 30 seconds. He's holding this staff up all day long. He needed help. They sat him on the rock. Aaron took one arm. Her took the other. And isn't that how God generally works with us? We know, don't we, that it's all of grace. Our salvation, our very life in Christ is all of him. It's all his work in our lives, but yet he calls us to obey him. He calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He calls us to mortify our sin. He calls us to all the imperatives that we read Sunday after Sunday in the law. Love all, study, listen, have patience, be gentle, on and on it goes. Yet it's all of grace. Yet the battle of sanctification, brothers and sisters, is hard. There, 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 there's no way getting around it. It's hard because it's supposed to be hard. Sometimes God parts the Red Sea for Israel. Sometimes he parts the Red Sea for us. But more often than not, like we see with Israel today, God didn't just wipe out the Amalekites. They had to go fight for it. More often than not, in our lives, God works through hard, normal, and steady means of grace in our lives. And like Moses, we need the help of others Two, just because 
Aaron and Hur held Moses' arms up. I can't imagine how much pain. That pain must have been unimaginable for him. As together they held him up. And the text says, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. As the sun was setting on that battlefield, with the dead and the cries of the dying Amalekites, God gives his last instruction to an exhausted Moses on a hill. And Moses builds a lasting shrine and a permanent promise in verses 14 through 16. Read those with me. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." This is another first for us, the last one in the text. This is the first time that God tells anybody to write something down. From now on, whenever God tells someone to write something down, nothing could be more important. In just a little while in the book of Exodus, he's going to give Moses ten commandments, and he's going to say, write these down. In Habakkuk, God calls the prophet and says, write these things down. And what does the prophet Habakkuk write? He writes, the just shall live by faith. The very words of our Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, and the very words that pierce the heart of an Augustinian monk years later that would change the world. When the apostle John is carried by the Spirit up to the heaven of heavens on the Lord's day, As we've seen on Sunday night, John sees a vision, and he's told to write these things in a book. Brothers and sisters, when God says, write something down, we better listen. But look at what God wants Moses to write down in this book and recite to Joshua. A promise of the utter destruction and judgment of Amalek. We are staring, brothers and sisters, straight here at a doctrine of the, an attribute of God that the world will never acknowledge. <clears throat> you know, the world is fine with a baby Jesus born and celebrating. The world is not okay with a Jesus Christ coming back, taking vengeance on those who do not know him. If you were here last Sunday night, you would have heard Dr. Dunson masterfully describe the same proclamation with the fifth and sixth seals in the book of Revelation chapter 6. He says to Moses, write in this book, I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Yet there are two proclamations here, one by God and one by Moses, and they show in one breath another glimpse of the God that is revealing himself to his chosen people. For God declares judgment to Amalek and by extension all that reject him. But we also see God's deliverance and justice of his own people. 
Moses builds an altar on the very spot that Aaron and Hur had held his arms up for an everlasting marking of God's deliverance of Israel on the battlefield. He calls it Jehovah Nisi. In Hebrew, Shemo Adonai Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And he is your banner, brothers and sisters. He's referring directly, of course, to the staff that was held as a banner on that day that showed the power of the Lord to defeat and and, uh, miraculously give victory for Israel over their enemies. And somehow we instinctively know, don't we, who this banner is. A banner points the way. The banners hang in the rafters to talk about NBA championships, or other great things of human accomplishment. Banners are made to be seen. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 says, the same word, this Nisi, is identified, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, and he will stand as a banner for the people. We know who that is, don't we? As we begin to close, I'd like just to ponder three things from this text. Um, It's truly remarkable text that we can grab on and maybe make our own. The first is this. Brothers and sisters, all of our battles, just like this attack by Amalek, are from the direct, good, and sovereign hand of God. Just as this scene, the details of this battle and the outcome in the wilderness that day were long part of God's perfect plan for Moses and Israel, so each one of your battles that you face are just as personally and lovingly wrought and brought by your loving Father. How will you respond? Will you respond like the men of Israel, forgetting yourself and fleeing to the battle? Or will you dwell in cowardice, self-pity, maybe fear? You say, who are you? You don't know my troubles. You don't live my life. You don't know how bad I've had it. You don't know how mistreated I've been. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. You don't know my financial situation. You don't know my health. My pain, I know, I don't. But listen, what really is the alternative for you, Christian? If God is not right in the middle of your pain and battles, acting for your ultimate good and his glory, what kind of God do you have? Perhaps no God at all. But listen, oh You saints weary from the battle, be encouraged. Look around. There are multiple errands and hers in this room who are more than willing and want to help lift your weary arms along the way to raise the banner together. Secondly, Just like the battle at Rephidim, God writes the outcome of your battles before they start. 
The good news is the book and the altar are for you. Just as Moses had to write the words in a book for Joshua to recite them to Joshua, I just love that. I don't know about you. Write these words and recite them to Joshua. And the idea isn't, okay, recite them. Oh, isn't that nice? The, the, the obvious connotation is recite them and recite them and recite them and recite them. And he does. He promises in the book he has written for you, brothers and sisters, I will not leave or forsake you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. I go and prepare a place for you, and where and I will come again, and where I am, you will surely be with me. Say it with me, and Moses, Redeemer, as one that has experienced God's promised miraculous victory, both now and the world to come, Nisi Adonai, the Lord is my banner. But finally, if you are not in Christ, the altar is not yours. Only the words of judgment are yours. Oh, for those here who don't know the Lord, there are no books of promises or altars of remembrance for you. Only the fate of Amalek and the same promise of judgment. Give me a break. I never killed anybody. I never called an army. Yeah, you haven't. But even with those attitudes, you are spitting in the face of your Savior. My question is, what can possibly keep you from fleeing to the cross of Christ? Even today... Let there be no excuse. You may be watching by live stream. You may be here. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Listen to the clear three-sentence gospel. Why did he come? Matthew 121, he came to save his people from their sins. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law that you could never keep. He died a perfect atoning death to pay for every sin of those very ones he came to save. And finally, listen, he says to you, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, 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 come to Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. Will you come to Christ once and for all? Then you too can sing with Moses, sing with the chosen children of Israel, sing with every other believer, be thou my battle shield, sword for the fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight. Thou my soul's shelter and thou my high tower, raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. Let's pray. Our Father, a group this size and certainly many, many more watching, there may be more than one 
that knows they need to come to you, will you make this the day they do? There's nowhere else to turn. It's you and only you. And as Peter said, where are we to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And those of us that do do know you, Lord, we never, ever get tired of hearing the gospel. It's so easy, yet it's so difficult. The words and the understanding of his sacrifice, a child can grasp. Yet sometimes the distance of our dark hearts are so far that we can never reach that. Father, will you bridge the gap and draw your people to yourself? And finally, Lord, your people that are here today, will you make it so abundantly clear that any issues, any problems, any battles that they're going to face today, tomorrow, 2021, and beyond are put there by your very loving and gracious hand to both chisel us, to both make us uh, love you and come to know you in a deeper way, but ultimately, Lord, whatever your reason, it's for our good. Will you help us realize and appreciate your ultimate sovereignty and love for us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing our hymn of response, that same song, Be Thou My Vision.